The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, December 5th. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. In tonight's news, the Madison Common Council is set to vote on a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. City officials are looking for public feedback on a downtown pedestrian mall proposal. Wisconsin's longtime Secretary of State discusses a new Republican effort to thwart Wisconsin's top elections administrator. And in the second half, UW-Madison student journalists discuss life at the French House and a warm-weather bird has made its way up to Wisconsin at the cusp of winter. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. In breaking news this evening, Dane County Judge Diane Schlipper has affirmed that Wisconsin's 1849 law addresses infanticide does not apply to abortion providers and can't be enforced. The 1949 law, which was written a year after Wisconsin became a state, came back into effect after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade in its Dobbs v. Jackson decision in June 2022. Without the protections of Roe, states were left to apply their own laws on the books. But today's decision effectively reinstates the protections in place for 50 years before Dobbs, when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land. In a statement this evening, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin applauded the decision. They also announced that abortion services at their Sheboygan location would resume as soon as possible. The Sheboygan DA is one of three defendants in the case who has indicated he would enforce the 1849 law. Planned Parenthood carefully resumed abortion services in Madison and Milwaukee in July after Judge Schlipper found that ban did not apply. This is a developing story and we'll have more for you on tomorrow's evening news. State health officials say COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin have jumped 50% since October. They are urging residents to take steps to avoid the virus and other respiratory illnesses this winter. Hospitalizations, positive lab results, and virus levels in wastewater have all shown a steady uptick over the last two months, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The current numbers are lower than pandemic peaks in 2020 and 2021, but doctors with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services are still advising people to take this, vi- this virus seriously. Officials advise that if you take ho- that you take a home COVID test if you feel sick and avoid other, uh, exposing others if positive. They are also urging people to get updated vaccines for COVID and the flu. Wisconsin parents could soon be able to surrender their newborns in so-called baby boxes without having to interact with anyone. Currently, Wisconsinites can surrender an infant anonymously, but they have to hand them directly to police, medics, or hospital staff. Under this legislation, hospitals and fire stations could install heated, secure boxes where babies could be left safely from outside. Governor Tony Evers is expected to sign the bill, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Supporters say the baby boxes help avoid the stigma around relinquishing babies, especially in smaller communities, and will ultimately improve child safety. Wisconsin would join 15 other states that allow the boxes. A bipartisan proposal in the Wisconsin legislature would expand education and employment opportunities for people who came to the country as undocumented children, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Wisconsin has nearly 6,000 residents enrolled in the Federal Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, which gives them legal status to live and work in the U.S., but current state law blocks them from accessing some opportunities. A new bill looks to remove some of those barriers. 
It would allow DACA recipients to qualify for in-state tuition at universities of Wisconsin schools and allow them to receive state-issued professional licenses in fields like teaching, nursing, plumbing, and dentistry. Lawmakers from both parties have signed on to the measure. 24 other states have enacted similar legislation. A Wisconsin pastor has been sentenced to 15 years in federal prison for trading sexually explicit images with a child living in Venezuela. According to the Associated Press, 40-year-old Corey Herthel of Green Bay pled guilty in August to attempted sexual exploitation of a child. That came after church where, the church where he served reported him to the FBI. Investigators say Herthel traded sexual videos with a 15-year-old in Venezuela as well as two other children living in Cuba. Some Madison residents, elected officials, and environmentalists have concerns over a pending lease deal between the Wisconsin Air National Guard and Dane County Regional Airport. They worry the agreement could allow the military to avoid legal responsibility for pollution. The Capital Times reports the Dane County Board is considering a 10-year joint lease agreement with state and federal military agencies. Part of the deal would have the military continue to handle fire and rescue services at the airport. But the terms specify that the National Guard would not be liable for pollution or contamination at the facility or surrounding areas. State environmental officials say long-standing use of firefighting foam at the airport has already contaminated nearby waterways with PFAS, so-called forever chemicals that have been linked to some types of cancer, birth defects, and other health issues. Some county supervisors and airport officials have requested that the parts of the contract dealing with liability be modified before it comes up for a vote later this month. Madison Metro Transit officials say work is wrapping up on some parts of the city's new bus rapid transit system, while construction is just getting started in other areas. Crews are finishing work on new BRT stations on East Washington Avenue and Midvale Boulevard, reports Channel 3000. Work on other two stations on University Avenue will start this week. And construction is scheduled to begin on State Street and Capitol Square stations in February. The system is set to launch service in late 2024. And now on to today's top stories. Madison Alders have a packed meeting at tonight's city council meeting. The agenda ranges from appointing election inspectors to contracting with Madison College for paramedic training to naming a new city poet laureate. One item that's expected to take up a large share of the meeting is a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. The resolution calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, along with urgent political action to de-escalate the crisis. It calls on the federal government to facilitate sending humanitarian aid and for all parties to release hostages and cease hostilities toward civilians. More than half of the council is behind the resolution. Twelve alders are listed as sponsors. One is downtown alder Marsha Rummel, who says it's responding to the overwhelming horror of the situation in Gaza. I think as citizens of the U.S. and part of the empire, if you will, it's our responsibility to stand up and say, have a ceasefire, stop the killing. We might not know all the answers to solve the issues in the Middle East, but killing people is not the way. Northside alder Amani Latimer Burris is also a sponsor. She says that she and her colleagues are looking to use whatever influence they have. I'm not sure that on the local level or on the state level that we individually have the power to, you know, affect change in that way other than make our voices heard on that and make other people's voices heard. That's part of the responsibility as an alder. It's not about us. It's about what the people want. 
If passed, Madison would join a handful of local city councils who have recently passed resolutions calling for a ceasefire. That includes councils in Atlanta, Detroit, Oakland, and Richmond, California, Wilmington, Delaware, Carborough, North Carolina, and Providence, Rhode Island. If the resolutions passed, Madison's council would send a copy to President Biden and Wisconsin's federal delegation. Alder Rummel says there's been an outpouring of public feedback. We've gotten lots of letters and support, and the anguish is real, and the genuine concern for people's lives is just heartbreaking, and I think, you know, many, many people want us to do this. Tonight's meeting starts at 6.30. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. The idea has been debated for decades, and now a pedestrian mall on an expanded stretch of State Street could come as soon as next summer. Members of the public got their first look at preliminary plans last night. WRT reporter Lila Grubb has the story. Planters would replace wooden barricades in what city planners call an aesthetically pleasing signifier that the thoroughfare is open to only bikes and pedestrians. In a virtual forum last night, city planners outlined how they might create an experimental pedestrian mall on the lower end of State Street. Under the plan, 400 to 600 blocks of the downtown hub would be closed off. That's from Gorham Street to Hawthorne Court. The project would also include more seating, street murals, and a selfie station. The plan, which is being branded as Flock to State, may include the city's official bird, the Pink Lawn Flamingo. The plans are the product of some community feedback. A survey of community members and business owners conducted by the city earlier this year found that 57% were in support, but had some concerns about accessibility. Currently, State Street isn't open to through traffic, but emergency vehicles, city vehicles like buses, garbage trucks, sweepers, and snowplows, along with some permitted private vehicles, are allowed to be on State Street. Under the experimental closure, some of those vehicles would still be allowed. City planner Dan McAuliffe says that's something they're planning for. From city operations, we still need to plow, we still need to pick up uh, trash and recycling, we still need to be in there to plant trees and water the plants. So we still need to have some level of vehicles going up and down the street. As for delivery vehicles serving State Street businesses, McAuliffe says that's essential. That could include loading zones on the cross streets or specific time slots for delivery vehicles. The draft plan outlines that there would be no changes to the streets or curbs, and emergency access and fire lanes would be critical. Paratransit vehicles would also still be allowed to enter State Street. Plans for the experimental closure are still being ironed out, even though the change is likely to come next summer. While last night's forum only lasted 45 minutes, community members voiced concern over how the pedestrian mall would impact minority-owned businesses. McAuliffe says that overall, they have no control over State Street businesses, but hope to find other ways to promote and encourage diversity around the area. We do have some street vending. Um, That is possible that we look at how we can encourage a more uh, diverse um, opportunity for, for persons of color in this space. Community members also pushed the city to work with minority artists to work on the planned street mural. The finalized design is expected to head to Common Council for approval by next month, with a tentative plan to launch by graduation weekend next May. Meanwhile, city planners are still taking feedback. A link to submit feedback on the finalized designs is available in the online version of this story at wortfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Lila Grubb. Long-term federal funding for farmer conservation programs still needs to be sorted out. 
In the meantime, agricultural voices say recent investments are paying off, and they hope the public realizes the benefits of environmentally friendly practices extending beyond farmland. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has the story. If you live in a flood-prone community, soil health from nearby farmland may have something to do with it. Ag voices in Wisconsin say government-funded conservation programs are effective in mitigating those risks and disaster expenses. Congress will soon renew debate over long-term farm bill funding, including incentives for producers to adopt practices like no-till farming, which allow the soil to hold more water after heavy rain. Julio Badinsky is a consultant for the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute and says this isn't just an issue for farmers and policymakers. She says taxpayer dollars come into play when these programs are underfunded. Some of the costs that they pay because of the lack of investment in soil health practices, especially municipalities, rural communities, even state budgets, when they're looking at costs to repair flooding damages. Her research shows that between 2009 and 2019, Wisconsin suffered nearly $36 million in flood damage. On the flip side, she says soil health investment and improved water quality pay off for communities, such as boosting home values along watersheds. These discussions also follow recent conservation funding boosts from the Inflation Reduction Act, with advocates noting they're poised to help more rural areas. South-central Wisconsin farmer Ron Shep is among those who have tapped into IRA incentives this year through the Federal Conservation Stewardship Program. He's adding to the soil health practices he's carried out over the years, providing benefits that reach beyond his property. We farm right on Lake Wisconsin, and so there's less runoff, and so that definitely helps the neighbors by keeping a cleaner Lake Wisconsin. He also contends that making these incentives more accessible could place less stress on disaster aid programs for farmers. Congress has until next fall to adopt a new farm bill after extending the recent version for another year. While many programs have bipartisan support, it's unclear how funding disagreements and the 2024 election will influence reauthorization. This is Mike Moen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Yesterday, state Republican lawmakers introduced their latest effort to thwart Megan Wolf, Wisconsin's elections administrator. They proposed legislation that would transfer the position's duties to Wisconsin Secretary of State Sarah Godlewski. If the bill is passed, that transfer would have to take place by June 30th before the 2024 election season kicks off in earnest. The Evers administration has already stated that the governor would immediately veto this legislation if it reaches his desk. The governor says the proposal is another attempt by state Republicans to meddle in the election process. This afternoon, WRT news producer Faye Parks spoke to Doug LaFollette. He served as Wisconsin's Secretary of State for 40 years and shared background about how the role has shifted over time. Thank you for joining me, Doug. I'm glad to be here. 
So you served as Wisconsin's Secretary of State for about 30 years. What kind of power did that position hold when you first took office? Well, the office had the responsibility for many business-related functions, like registration of corporations and trademarks, notary republic, and uh, uniform commercial code, things that Secretary of State have all across the country. And those were in the office when I was elected. There were about 40-some people working there. But then two different Republican governors decided to take those powers away. And it was very unfortunate because now Wisconsin is different than the rest of the country. And if you want to form a corporation or something like that, people come to the Secretary of State's office. But we don't do that here. So that was a big mistake that was made after I was selected way back 30-some years ago. How did your power shift as Secretary of State over time, especially during the Walker era? The large amount of responsibilities were taken away by Governor Thompson, and he moved them to the governor's control. He wanted to have control about everything. So he moved a lot of responsibilities to the governor. And then Governor Walker, after the big controversy over Act 10, they removed the rest of the duties and left the office with one responsibility, which is required under the Constitution. And what was that responsibility again? The activity which the office is still administering is called an apostille. It's an international document under what's called the Hague Convention that was set up to facilitate countries all over the world from doing trade and transactions. So if you want to do international trade, you want to adopt a child from a foreign country, you want to go to school in a foreign country, all those things require a document called an apostille. And the office does somewhere between 40 and 50 of those a day. And so Wisconsin is unique compared to other states because the Secretary of State actually doesn't have any purview over the elections administration. Was that always the case, or did you ever administer elections over the course of your career? The power to administer elections was removed from the office before I was elected. And what was done, and it was a very good idea, they set up an election board of, I believe, five retired judges. And those five judges did an excellent job. They weren't political. They followed the law, and it worked very well for many, many years. And then Governor Walker and the Republicans became irritated with that election board because they made a ruling, which I thought was correct, by the way, and they did not like that. So they eliminated the election board and set up the election commission. And that commission is much more political. It has Democrat and Republican representatives, and it leads to argument and stalemate. So I wish we'd go back to the election board. That was a much better system. So you mentioned how elections administration in Wisconsin has shifted a lot over time. Before you took office, it was under the Secretary of State's control. And then you supported the Government Accountability Board. You said that was effective. And then Walker eventually closed down that board and shifted to the Elections Commission. Can you walk us a little bit more deeply into that history? Well, you have it exactly right. That's what happened. Governor Walker controlled the legislature. Republicans had the majority. So they just decided to get rid of the board and set up a commission. And of course, that commission got in lots of trouble 
back during the attempt by President Trump to control the elections. And he actually flew a couple of the Republican members of that commission to Washington to meet with him in the White House, trying to convince them that maybe they could fiddle with the elections and allow him to win in Wisconsin, which he did not do, of course. State Republicans have an issue with how the Elections Commission is run. So they've been going after Megan Wolf, the elections administrator. And now, most recently, state Republicans have proposed transferring election power to the Secretary of State's office once again. What would this change exactly? Well, I think it's a big mistake. Wisconsin very cleverly got the politics out of elections way back before I was elected with the election board that we've talked about. And in other states, we've seen horrible problems in Florida and Ohio, where a secretary of state, a partisan Republican elected, tried to make changes in the election. And we saw what happened in the Trump effort in Georgia, in uh, Arizona, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, where they tried to get the elected political secretaries of state to do something about the election. And that is a mistake. It's a big problem. I've always said Wisconsin should not put the election under an elected political person, secretary of state. I was opposed to that. I still think it's a mistake. And I don't think it will happen. If they try to do that, I think the governor would veto that. And I don't know if the current Democratic sector state is in favor of that. I certainly hope not. So you just recently left the Secretary of State's office. From your perspective and from what you remember, do you think that office would have the resources to take over elections administration if this legislation passes? Well, at the moment, there's no way they could do it because there's only one full-time person working there handling the apostatils that we talked about. If they were to succeed, they would have to set up a system with more employees. Maybe as many as five or six or seven new people would have to be hired to try to administer that election responsibility. So the bill text does stipulate that all employees currently working under elections administrator Megan Wolf would immediately transfer to Secretary of State's office. Would that make a difference in terms of resources or would it still get kind of hairy? That's what has to happen. And I don't honestly know how many people are working with Megan, but they would have to all be moved to the Secretary of State's office. And I I don't know if that would be sufficient or whether I would have to have more people hired to do it. But again, it's a bad idea. We should not even talk about it. And I don't think it will happen. I hope not. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? It's a situation where you don't want politics to be involved in our elections. That's clear. The way to do that is have independent boards administer the elections. I wish Wisconsin would go back to that. I wish every state would set up a system that kept politics out of our election process. It would protect us for the kind of thing that almost happened in the last election with Mr. Trump trying to change things in a number of key states like Wisconsin. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Doug. Very good. Thank you for the interest in the topic. That was Doug LaFollette, Wisconsin's former Secretary of State. Over the course of his 30-year career, numerous governors shifted the extent of his power. He discussed a new proposal from state Republicans that would put elections administration under Secretary of State Godlewski's purview. According to LaFollette, that office has not handled elections in Wisconsin since before he was elected in the early 80s.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. On this week's Cardinal Call, feature contributor Hewan Lim and Daily Cardinal staff writer Clara Zimban, Zimban discuss day-to-day life at the French House. This unique home, located in a student neighborhood next to UW-Madison campus, is an immersive language learning and cultural experience for students. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hiwan Lim. And my guest today is Clara Zimban, staff writer for the Daily Cardinal. She's the author of a recent piece profiling the UW-Madison French House, an immersive residence and cultural center for UW students, where only French is spoken. Full disclosure, both Clara and I are very familiar with the French House because we are both residents there as well. First, let's get to know you a little bit, Clara. How did you end up here at the French House? Hi, so yeah, my name is Clara. I'm originally from Bordeaux in the southwest of France, but I've been studying for the past two years in Bristol in the UK, and I'm doing a year abroad in UW-Madison just for this year. Okay, so I ended up in the French house because I was looking for a place to live (laughs) in Madison. And I think you all know that it's a pretty difficult thing to do nowadays. So um, I think I was looking for a place where I could feel at home while being far away from France and Europe. And I think the French house kind of offers that for me. It's a place where I can speak my native language and be surrounded by French people, but also share my culture with people who are interested in in learning more about it. So that's why I, I live in the French house and I'm really happy. I think it's the perfect place for me, honestly, and I've been really enjoying it for the past three months. Yeah, so what was that like going from living in England where you were learning a lot of English culture and now you being an ambassador of French culture in the French house? What is it like? It's Sometimes it's a bit odd because I've never been in that situation before where where people would ask me questions about the French language and like I've never been like a teacher, I've never done anything like that. So it's really new to me, but I, at the same time, I really enjoy it because it allows me to connect with people on a different level. Because when I'm in the UK and I, I connect with like people, British people, in general, they don't really care about my French identity. When here, the conversation always revolves around French in some way. And I really love it. It, it, like, it makes me feel important, <laughs> but also it's like, meeting people who are in my situation when I'm in the UK. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, because I see myself in you guys and, like, the Americans who try to learn, like, another language, and I see myself when you struggle, I see myself in you when you feel guilt or, like, embarrassment, and it's just, like, a mirror in in a way, and it gives me more empathy for myself as well. Yeah, and going off of that, because you do live in the French house where we're required to speak French on six out of seven days, do you still feel like you're getting the full American experience living in the French house, like going to classes and living with American residents? 
Not really. I mean, it depends what you what the f- the American experience actually is because maybe I don't even know what it really is. But I feel like since I'm I study in the UK, I already have this opportunity to live in a foreign country and like develop my English speaking skills. So I was really okay with the fact that I would be speaking French most of for most of this year and in Madison and actually I feel like as I said it's really an enriching experience because it allows me both to like experience some of the American culture but also connect with Americans and French people through French and I think that's really special. So you're surrounded by American residents, but also on Sundays, we're allowed to speak whatever language we want. And for a lot of people, we just end up speaking in English. So while you've been around American people, what's your favorite American phrase or word that you've learned during your time here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I There are some things that you say that I find, that I find really cool, but like I didn't learn them here, I think. I... I think I'm forgetting things and like there are definitely some phrases that I've learned but I don't remember. I really like when you call each other dude. <laughs> Cuz in the UK no like no one does that and I feel like I also particularly enjoy when girls call, call each other dude. I feel like it's so cool. What else? It's also really fun to like watch how you interact with like with like within your American group <laughs> like, <laughs> and like the 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 inside jokes <laughs> the inside jokes and like the your sense of humor is really different from like European sense of humor quote unquote um, <laughs> so yeah it's just fascinating yeah I feel like. At least for the residents that I'm really close with, we're just so silly. And I feel like sometimes our jokes, like, we don't say them to actually try to be funny. We say them to crack each other up, <laughs> which, <laughs> and, like, one of our inside jokes is something that you taught us, which we can't say because it's a swear word. But I feel like that's going to be one of the memories that lasts with me after I graduate from college and my time at the French house is over. I feel like I'm going to look back on that and just, like, start laughing to myself. And it's so special because it's something that you cannot really explain to other people because <laughs> first it's in another language and also because it's just you have you had to be there and that's really cool do you have any jokes from the french house that are your favorites there aren't like recurring patterns of like jokes i just like to joke around with especially with Rania. I, th- i feel like she's so funny and we have like the same sense of humor it's really cool to like have such a big And large community because then like you have to find at least one person that's gonna understand you and like understand your brain and how how you move through the world so yeah I don't think there's one thing no what is your favorite and least favorite parts of living in the French house can you tell me your favorite and least favorite I feel like I should preface this by saying when I first moved into the French house, I was so scared of talking to people. Like, I was really anxious when I first moved in. But talking to people who have lived there longer than I have or talking to the French people, it kind of made me realize that they don't really care (laughs) if I can't speak that well, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. I feel like they can tell that I'm trying or that, like, my brain is kind of working overtime. And I think they can understand the struggle a little bit. Um, So I really like 
at least the people that I've gotten to know really well because they all seem like very genuine people and they all seem very passionate about intercultural learning and um, language acquisition and I feel like that's such a cool passion to all be tied together by so I think that's one of my favorite parts of the French house. I think that one of my least favorite parts of the French house is that at least in the two years that I've lived there, some of the French people do kind of tend to clump together a little bit, which I understand because there's like a lot of cultural similarities and it's also hard being abroad, being in a culture or being in a dominant culture that isn't yours. And I can understand, like, I totally understand that it's intimidating, but it's also a little hard on us American residents sometimes because it feels like we're doing something wrong or we're not fluent enough or proficient enough. But I feel like once you do get to know people, it's like everyone's really nice. Yeah. So I feel like I've been living in your shoes like for the past two years because I was in the same situation. I was like speaking my second language every day and like for other people it was easy and for me it was really difficult and like that this imbalance is really hard to handle because it's like it makes everything so difficult. I don't know, like you go you go to the store, it's difficult. You go to like your class, it's difficult. So I really, I don't know, it's like really interesting to understand how it feels for you guys now, because obviously I'm in a situation of privilege in a sense in the house because it's my first language, it's my native language. So I think this is one of my favorite parts, like the fact that I can understand this better. Back in Bristol, so in the UK where, where I study, I haven't lived in like a community like that before. Like I used to live in dorms where like people would like barely speak at each other. And so here it's like it's a real house because like there's a living room and we just like there's a living room, there's like we eat together, we do activities together and I don't know, I feel like we really grow a real friendship and like a real connection. And even though I think there are some like dynamics going on and like some people who obviously that's gonna happen, like some people who have affinities with with some people and then others and so this happens. But at the same time I feel like we I don't know, I'm really attached to this sense of being part of a little family and that's one of my favorite things at the house. I don't know about like my least favorite thing. Maybe because sometimes maybe you just want to be alone, but you can just isolate yourself and go in your room or go somewhere else. Yeah, and I know that for some of the native French speakers, they're at the house as assistants, I believe. And what was that like, again, sort of having not only the unofficial role of an ambassador of French culture, but also sort of having that responsibility of helping American residents acclimate to French culture and language? It's really cool. It's like you have this role, this role of... Um, helping people navigate a French conversation. I, I think it's it's really cool because they know that we're not going to judge them and they know we have the same experiences when we go outside the house. You know what I mean? It's like we, we're not going to judge them, we're not going to judge, judge their French level and it's only for like one meal. So it, there's it's really low commitment. I feel like those dinners are a really great idea because I know firsthand that like speaking is the way to like master a language and I feel like it's, it's such a great opportunity to become more confident 
and learn from other people and like meet for just one meal someone from a different culture from a different country so yeah it's great in other campus news Mecca de UW-Madison, a Latina student organization, moved from a house on Bernard Court to an office at the Red Gym due to construction at Levy Hall. The house was deemed unsafe during initial construction, and the organization will reassess a move back in about a year. Mecca expressed dissatisfaction with being grouped with other marginalized student organizations in a single space. However, concerns about safety and maintenance issues in the original building persist. In other campus news, a Dane County judge dismissed a case filed by PETA against the Wisconsin National Primate Research Center, alleging violations of Wisconsin's cruelty to animals law. While the judge found probable cause for crimes at the center on the UW-Madison campus, they declined to continue the case, citing the need for a fuller picture. PETA, which criticized the decision, initiated the case after an undercover operation documented alleged animal abuse. UW-Madison defended its research, emphasizing its contributions to fighting diseases. PETA, opposed to, quote, speciesism, end quote, questioned the institution's efficacy and sought accountability for alleged cruelty. The UWPD is investigating a racist incident involving anti-Arab and anti-Asian speech in the Moss Humanities Building. Sigma Psi Zeta sorority members reported the November 28th incident, where two individuals threatened a member, assuming she was Saudi Arabian. The incident condemned by the university, including spitting and anti-Asian language. The UWPD identified the individuals unaffiliated with the university and emphasized a commitment to combating hate and racism on campus. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg considers the arrival of a rare bird in the area. The limpkin, native to southern United States and South America, has made its way up to southern Wisconsin. So what brings them here? Here's a closer look. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we get to talk about a range shift for a very rare bird. And it's a bird that I can't say that I have ever seen in my entire lifetime, except that it did get admitted to the Wildlife Center here this year in 2023. So this happens every once in a while. You never know what kind of animal is ever going to come into a clinic, especially as a wildlife rehabilitator, because it could be an animal that is a bird who lives here. It could be endemic. It could be a bird that's a semi-partial migrant or one that stays year-round as a resident. Or it could be a migratory species or an accidental. There are so many different terms you can use to categorize a bird, but this one is going to be interesting. So I hope you're excited for this. But we admitted a limpkin. Yes, you heard that right. A limpkin. I can't believe I'm doing a radio segment about a bird that is actually more (laughs) in line of the tropical, warm weather loving state of Florida. I don't know if I can call it tropical, but you know what? Limpkins 
live mostly in South America and will come up to Florida, and that's where they are found here in the United States. So that's their northernmost range, usually. Yes, they have been in Wisconsin, and can you believe it? They've been in Wisconsin for the last couple of years. So the first state record happened in July 2022, and we have seen a good number of them throughout the state this year again. And Limpkins are a big bird. And by big, I mean like bigger than you'd think they would expect to be, because these birds are shorebirds. So if you kind of think about the rails, birds that are maybe similar to like a Virginia rail, for example, or, you know, Soras are a lot smaller, so that's not a great example, but they're just like a brown mottled big bird with a long beak. Now, they're actually more related to cranes than anything else, but if you can imagine this big brown and white mottled bird with a long beak, long legs, kind of looks like a stork type of thing, but it's very pretty and it's very unique because it has an end of its bill that is twisted and curved on purpose because it's adapted to eating snails. So it actually would eat the apple snails that are native to the freshwater wetlands areas, especially in Florida, And those apple snails, they would eat day and night, and it's just so cool how they're able to get into those curves, get them around, pull out the meat from inside of the snails, and leave the shells. So you can see where limpkins have been because they kind of leave a litter of a whole bunch of shells from different species. But because the apple snails are not the only snails that have been in the Florida area, and now I'm going to say this because this has happened in many different instances throughout our history in the United States and everywhere else in the world, but invasive species come in, right? So a whole different type of snail comes in, and then maybe an animal is able to adapt. They're able to eat something else. So in this case, they have been regularly feeding, in Wisconsin at least, and in Minnesota, Illinois, etc., on other mollusks like mussels and clams. But the cool thing is that there is another, well, I shouldn't say cool, because it's not actually the best thing. It's a non-native snail. It's a Chinese mystery snail that has escaped and has moved very far north. And so they are actually doing a very good environmental ecosystem service for us now, which is moving north in their range, so taking from where they were living, eating apples apple snails moving all along north. So imagine traveling from Florida all the way up to Wisconsin and Minnesota, but they're eating non-native Chinese snails. So from a conservation perspective, that's actually really great. But then the question comes down to, well, what if that non-native snail species ever ends up, you know, overtaking the native snails? Will there still be enough? Or vice versa, what if those snails get eaten up by all the limpkins and then they have to go back to a natural food source? What happens when they're regularly now coming to Wisconsin or Minnesota? So, you know, climate change obviously plays a big part into range shifts for different foods, especially for species like limpkins who are very specialized. But it's super interesting to kind of see what's happened over the years. So last year, like I said, was our first was the first record county. But in 2023 this year, there have been quite a few limpkins that have been seen around the state. So your best spots to have seen them would have been at Horicon Marsh, which is one of their probably favorite types of food areas. So shallow freshwater ponds, anything swamps and stuff that have those mollusks. And then the other spot might be up near Swamico, like if we're talking Green Bay. We did have a few that was south in our area in Madison. So one or two observations, according to eBird. But we also had more towards Mount Horeb. There were quite a number of observations, some in Edgerton. So, you know, it really depends on where that habitat is for what they need. And sadly, this one limpkin that we did admit here to the Wildlife Center, which was only a little while ago here, a couple weeks, unfortunately, it had already arrived in very poor condition. It had passed right as it had been admitted to our clinic. 
meaning that, you know, maybe something happened, maybe got hit by a car. We don't really know every time the exact circumstances, but unfortunately it was not a Limpkin that was able to be saved since we didn't even really get the chance. And that's always really hard as rehabilitators when right on admission, you you put them in an oxygen chamber maybe, or you give them some really quick fluids or warmth or heat support. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't make it even in a very quick time period. So although it was very cool, it's also very sad. But it is also something that we can document and we can also help to preserve that one limpkin, for example, to give to our UW-Madison Zoology Museum or for other researchers who might be studying the limpkins that come up north. And it's, I'm sure, going to be a species we're going to see more often here over the next couple of years, especially as they expand northward. So check out some information about limpkins. Maybe go to your allaboutbirds.org on the Audubon website. Otherwise, there's some really great blogs about them being in Illinois. And I just think they're a really fun bird to kind of do a bit of research about and even to watch some videos about how they get those meat out of the snails that they eat. Neat species, not one that we would have regularly seen in Wisconsin, but cool to be able to say that one was documented coming into rehabilitation at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. So first for us and first in the last couple of years for Limpkins being here in our state. So thanks for listening today. Today has been a segment all about Limpkins, a weird species that really hasn't been here before that is more endemic to Florida. So if you get the chance, take a look at what the Limpkin looks like, what it sounds like, and we hope you enjoy this segment about the species. Thanks for listening here on WORT about Limpkins. This has been Wildlife Weekly. As the Wisconsin legislature faces questions about electric vehicle charging practices, our neighbor to the south is already working to get teens more comfortable with these cars of the future. More than a dozen schools in Illinois have added electric vehicles to their driver's ed classes. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz of Yale's Climate Connections has the story. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Teenagers at some Illinois high schools are now taking driver's education classes in electric cars. EVs are the future. I mean, it's something that we can get these kids ready to use. Greg Mitchell is the driver's ed director at Langtech College Prep, a public high school in Chicago. The school recently added an EV to its fleet of cars, using a grant from ComEd, the local electric utility. The utility's EVs for Education program has allowed more than a dozen schools to buy electric cars and chargers for their driver's ed programs over the past few years. Mitchell says driving an electric car is not that different than driving a gas-powered car, so the students generally learn the same basic skills. But the electric cars do save him time on maintenance. On Fridays, I'm running back and forth to gas up all the cars at the fleet station, whereas right now I can just plug in the EVs and that's it. They're here and they're good to go. When it comes to teenagers and cars, some things will never change. I think 16-year-olds are happy to drive any car when they get it. But as the country transitions away from fossil fuels, this program helps students feel comfortable and prepared to drive electric vehicles. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Lila Grubb was your reporter. Welcome to the team, Lila. 
Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hewan Lim, Wisconsin News Connections Mike Mullen, and Dr. Anthony Eisowitz of Yale's Climate Connections. Super Dave Lawrence and engineer the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe at your preferred podcast directory. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.